stop it. Hello everyone, welcome to the Unacceptable Podcast. This is Mila here with Ken and we have a special guest, uh, Professor Carl Widerquist, who uh, is a political philosopher and an economist at Georgetown University and the co-founder of the U.S. Basic Income Guarantee Network. He's authored numerous publications on basic income, so today we're going to talk about universal basic income in depth. Uh, last episode, we kind of played with the issue a little bit, but we're going to have, uh, we're going to take the discussion to another level. So how's it going, everyone? Good. Good. Keeping, keeping well during quarantine. Um, so during now, especially because of this quarantine, the coronavirus, I think the discussion of universal basic income has really become more centered, at least in Canada, where we're at right now. We have the government giving out uh, checks to people who are unable to work. And there's been a kind of debate going on where we've been considering the universal basic income. So there's there's both right-wing and left-wing critiques of this, which we'll go through later. But I'm going to let uh, Carl first go through uh, just some some basics. So Carl, I wanted to ask what first got you into this debate? Well, um, there's, uh, I don't know if it's something to be proud of or if it's something to be, uh, to be ashamed of, but I've been interested in basic income, uh, since my 15th birthday, uh, on February 7th, 1980, when Milton Friedman, uh, broadcast uh, a television series, his television series, Free to Choose. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, the episode that aired that night was uh, about the negative income tax, which is, shares a lot of similarities to basic income. And I've been a supporter of the idea really since then, uh, which gives me, I guess, a lot of cred for uh, long-term involvement in the movement. But it also kind of implies that uh, my, my political ideas haven't changed in 40 years, but that's not really true. My political ideas have very much developed in those years, but basic income has really become something that, that, that formed, that has, that has taken a much bigger role in my thinking as uh, as I've developed over these years. Yeah, I think that's something I think about a lot as well, because I think I've had these baseline political views. And as I get older, some of them change, but there's still a sort of fundamental ethic behind them. Interestingly, Milton Friedman had a big impact on my views. I joke that he actually, he turned me into a socialist um, when I read uh, Democracy and Capitalism in my yeah. democratic theory class. <laughs> um, reverse psychology there. Yeah, there was a little bit of reverse psychology. So I, uh, what are some adjacent topics that have helped you develop your views on universal basic income? 
I'm not sure what you mean by adjacent topics. Could you? Uh... So, so yeah. So like, is there an underlying um, ethical theory or political theory that has sort of influenced uh, your opinion on this issue, which is kind of a largely economic one, but it also intersects with, uh, say, like ethical theory on some levels as well? Oh, yes. Um, I, um, I was raised by lefty Christians uh, who take the egalitarian component of Christianity very seriously, uh, which most Christians today don't. They uh, portray it as if uh, if you're poor, it means you haven't prayed enough or you've done the bad things as long as you hate the right people um, and you're not gay or a single mother and you say uh, you love Jesus, that's all there is to Christianity. Uh, that wasn't the type of theology that I was raised, and I'm still not a Christian, but I was raised in the idea that it's it was it was about uh, it was about living these commandments that tell you to be very selfless and giving, and to be uh, on the side of the least advantage. And uh, I take that very seriously. That um, that justice is about being on the side of the very least advantage and the most oppressed, and what I find is that all of all societies are run by some by some connected group. Even a perfect democracy is going to be run by fifty one percent who are relatively advantaged to at least some of the people who are out of that group. You can have a revolution of the proletariat, but whoever gets in charge is no longer one of this most proletariat disadvantaged groups, they're the new ruling group, and everybody makes biases in their favor. So there's really no such thing as a, as a social contract and we, that we can, can tell ourselves, everybody's a part of this, those least advantaged people are sharing in this. We're telling us that ourselves these things, any right system we create or any social contract idea we get, we're telling this as an excuse to put burdens on the least advantaged people. We might be burdening ourselves in some way either, but we're not really understanding the, the, uh, the, abused, the, the abused spouse, the, uh, the homeless person, uh, the, the person separated from their family at the border. We really don't understand that perspective. And we don't realize how cruel we're doing. We are being to them. So we, we are always failing in these things. So what we have to do is really to be over the top in our generosity towards all of the outsiders. That doesn't mean we shouldn't protect ourselves from criminals, but it does mean that we have to be really humane to them, even the people that we're most convinced are the most heinous criminals. And that's one of the reasons that I'm for basic income is that we can't just set people out of our society. It's not really practical to carve off territories to subgroups because then the the nations just get smaller and smaller and then they go to wars with each other but what we can do to is to, is to ask a uh, sort of uh, asking as little as possible from the people in our society like um and then rewarding people if you want to give if you want people to do more you have to reward them more but the baseline for being a citizen and obeying the rules is you're going to get quite a bit for that so basic income humane treatment of all outsiders including convicted criminals 
fits into that. Yeah, I guess that's very, um, because the unconditional part is what's so novel about this idea, I think. Um, Usually we're used to things like means testing and stuff like that. And I think we'll get into that uh, later on. Um, so I guess what, what do you think is the best argument for universal basic income or how do you persuade people? I think what we want to do is kind of let you, uh, make your case here. Yeah. Well, um, I do not consider myself an expert at persuasion at selling these ideas. I'm a theorist. Uh, I write, I write, uh, mostly heavy-duty academic theory. It is, it is political theory, so it's written in plain English, or as much as I can eh, uh, in plain English. Um, so anyone can, can read it and understand it, but it's, it's difficult going for people that haven't, that aren't well-versed in it. Oh, actually, it's, it's difficult going for people who are well-versed in it. I know I'm a political theorist. I read lots of political theory, and it's, all of it's difficult going. Um, because it's very exacting arguments. That's what I specialize in. I don't specialize in persuasion. There are other people, like Scott Sands, who you might have heard of, who's, who uh, lives here in New Orleans and uh, is, uh, is very much, uh, uses the same sort of theory of basic income as I do, is very much good at the art of, art of persuasion, as is... Uh, as is uh, Bergman in the Netherlands and lots of other people. However, now, the, what I find to me, so I, I can tell you, I can't tell you what I think is the most persuasive, but I think what I think the most powerful argument is, is that the reason that I'm for basic income is that I think it's wrong for anyone to come between anyone else and the resources they need to survive. And that is exactly what we do. We tell ourselves that it's no fault of our own, people are poor, and we're good if we help them, but we're not causing it. Well, of course we're causing it. We are causing it because poverty is a lack of ownership of resources. That what it, that's what it means to be poor. In, in society, for the first 200,000 years that humans existed or thereabouts, there was no such thing as poverty. There was difficult life, but everyone had access to the resources they needed to survive. The world was an open commons. People could hunt, they could gather, they could fish, and they could scavenge. They didn't have to ask someone's permission to go out and use the resources of the earth. There are people in the world today who don't have clean water because they can't afford to buy it. There are people who can't grow their own food because all the land is owned by others. They can't hunt and gather. They can't fish because all the rivers are polluted. They can't hunt and gather because all the hunting grounds have been plowed over. They can't farm because all the farmland is taken up by suburban housing or something else. They cannot provide for themselves. So we say, these resources are ours. You can't have them. You're homeless. Your foraging opportunity is scavenging in someone else's garbage. That is the only foraging opportunity. Otherwise, it is beg or it is do what you're told. So we're actually, we create poverty and then we use it as a threat. The way out of poverty, we say, is work. You gotta work. And we don't mean work for yourselves. People have been working for the 200,000 years that the species has existed. But only recently has work become synonymous with paid employment. 
And that is the only, and no matter how much work do you do and how valuable it is, if you spend your day raising four children or caring for a sick relative or going around picking up garbage or doing things for people in need, you don't get money. You get money for doing services for the people who own the property of the world. The very fact of their ownership is what means that you don't have direct ownership to the commons we used to have. So we not only, so not only is it, is it wrong, we're not only creating the situation where poverty exists, but we are, we are taking advantage of it. We're using it as a threat to get the disadvantaged people of the world to do what the advantaged people of the world want them to do. It's self-serving and it's wrong. Yeah, I think, well, one of the things uh, Ken and I were discussing last week was basically like the less uh, economically empowered one is, the more uh, likely or the easier it is for, say, like predatory bosses to take advantage of, uh, say, their laborers because they know that they need this income a lot more to survive. So when you're advocating for a UBI, do you... Um, is there a specific number uh, or uh, amount that you advocate for? And how did you come to that uh, figure? Well, um, I, I have sort of given up trying to have a dollar figure at my fingertips because it changes every year. Yeah. Inflation and economic growth and you can't keep up. So um, what I, I talk about it in an academic paper that, that uh, I wrote almost 10 years ago um, called The Physical Basis of Voluntary Trade is to put people, you want to get the minimum, a basic income should be at least the minimum where you are entering the market economy and society in general. Um, as a free person who's entering because the reward, the positive rewards are good, not because you're desperate and you have to. The, uh, the main things people have to do to, uh, to get property in the world today are get, it, uh, get a job working for someone who has property or marry somebody who has property. Neither of those things are people that, things that people should do because they are desperate for the resources they need to survive and thrive. So uh, what I argue is it needs to be enough for food, shelter, clothing, at least basic transportation, not for, you know, you don't necessarily need the freedom to jet off to Sydney twice a year or anything like that, but to get around your community where you're going to have contacts, yes. Um, and uh, uh, food, shelter, clothing, some basic, ba basic um, transportation. Um, if medical care is not free, it's got to be enough for medical care and things like that. Um, and, um, and then a cushion to make sure for the other things that people, that people pursue in order to start projects and make their life meaningful. So if you see that people have enough for these things, but they're also exhibit other signs of desperate, then you know that the cushion is too small. That's how I talk about going about how I, going about finding it. Uh, I think the poverty measure in the U.S. is a very poor measure of that. We need a better poverty measure, um, but that is not that is that is not a research avenue that I've looked into. Well, what would be the ideal poverty measure? Someone 
someone should do a much better one for the U.S. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I like I, I was thinking of that because, and I guess you kind of answered it, is just because I think one of the critiques of UBI is that it wouldn't um, sort of keep up with things like inflation. So some people have argued for a federal jobs guarantee instead of the UBI or some have argued for it in accordance with UBI. I'd be interested to hear what you think of that, like a federal jobs guarantee versus the UBI. Um, the, the, uh, there's no reason why basic income can't keep up with inflation. Just make sure you know what inflation is and, that, uh, and you know what the growth rate in the economy are and you make sure that basic income keeps up with both of them. That's perfectly easy to do. Um, and now when you, when you pay people a basic income, that's going to create inflationary pressure. But when you tax people, that creates deflationary pressure that counteracts the inflationary pressure. The basic income doesn't, a good, base, good well, uh, well-resourced basic income system does not need to, have, to add in inflationary pressure into the system. Um, so uh, that's, that's not an issue. The, question about a guaranteed job a guaranteed job is that it is if you add that to a basic income system i don't have a big complaint about it now you could say well you could whatever money you're spending on the guaranteed job maybe you should use that for higher basic income yeah maybe you should but in principle i don't have anything uh against uh against a guaranteed job what i am against is means testing, this idea that people need to prove it, is that if you don't do your job, then you're, you ought to be in poverty. That is, is self-serving and ultimately self-defeating idea that the upper class has been selling the middle class for the last several centuries. It's a horrible idea. And it doesn't just, and, and they, they sell it to the middle class. So you're the good people. Oh, you work. You're the good people. And it's those bad people who don't want to work, who are the big drag on the system. It's not us, the people who just own stuff and get paid for owning things. We're not the problem. So bad people who don't want to work. Well, a lot of people who own stuff don't work. Um, and even if they do work, most of their money is still coming from the stuff they own. Um, the uh, most incomes, the most important income is not from what you do. It's from what you own now. So it's, so this, and we're all working for, we're, we're working for, no, we're not all working for each other as workers. Um, it's the system is structured. So all workers are working for property for, um, the, we're all working to get a hold of property and we have to go to the people who own the existing assets in our world to do that. The rentiers of the world. We're all working for the rentiers. And it is self-defeating to put all the workers in a position where we need to test you by, and our, our test, we have this, what makes you a worthy person? Do you work for rentiers? Well, that's an awfully self-serving idea of what it means to prove your worth. But also, this idea, uh, this idea is self-defeating for the middle class because it puts them in the same position. Uh, middle class people cannot just, most middle class people who are not nearing retirement age cannot afford to stop working and live off their assets. 
If they were, we'd call them independently wealthy. We wouldn't call them middle class. Most people can't stop working and therefore, they have very little leverage to command higher wages. The lack of a basic income, the market power problem that this creates goes way, way up into the middle class. We don't even know how far. If we give the power to say no to everyone by making sure they're compensated for the fact that they can't just go work for themselves because the commons is closed, that gives every single person who has to work for a living from the poorest person to the wealthiest person so, or to the, the for, for, sorry, the highest salaried person who's not yet wealthy. All of those people, it gives them greater leverage to command better wages versus the people who get paid for owning stuff. And a guaranteed job doesn't do anything to change that situation. You set a wage, everybody gets the guaranteed job at that wage. And it does give you, if, if I don't like private sector wages, I can go to this job, but it's only as good as this job is. And it maintains this idea that all of us have to prove our existence. All of us have to prove our existence by working for rentiers. And that's no way to structure a society. That's not a society based on voluntary trade where everybody participates because they want to, not because they have to. Um, so, so would I be in, it sounds like you, would you say that you see UBI almost as a transitionary, like, idea because it sounds like you you are criticizing the way society is is set up and then and and you would you would like ubi to empower people to is, is there something after ubi that you would see as as like a good way to set up society does that does that question make sense i, I don't know yeah. um there are people who okay but it, um it's funny how much how much people fight over vague terms uh uh, socialism for, the, as far as I'm concerned, the debate on socialism versus capitalism is the, the debate of vagueness against vagueness. Uh, it is the people on one side of the debate define those terms very differently than people on the other side of the debate, and even the people on the same side are dividing these things very way, like, well, we got to get rid of capitalism, which sounds to uh, people who are for capitalism, so there will be no money and they'll be just sharing, and there'll be uh, no organization. You know, what, what, is it, what, are these thing, what, what do these things mean? What does it mean to move beyond capitalism? Now, if you define capitalism as a system where the worker has nothing to sell but their labor, and they are compelled by that need to go out and work for, for rentier owners, then basic income itself, uh, uh, then it already destroys capitalism. Then capitalism doesn't exist. But if you define it as a system where, uh, where people who people uh, privately own the means of production and have, uh, and have great control over them, uh, it does, it continue, allows that to exist. However, that's where the taxes ought to become. So you're greatly reducing the power of these people, how much you have to reduce, the, you're reducing it directly by taxing it and creating the base income and reducing it again then by giving all the workers in society greater leverage. What that's gonna do to the system just in and of itself, I don't know. I also think we need better protections for the environment and better management of uh, resources as the people's endowment rather than as just uh, up for grabs for whoever wants to become a rentier. Um, but that doesn't mean that private ownership and markets don't exist anymore. I don't know. Does that make, I mean, that's a very different market system. Does that, is that 
do you want to call that capitalism? It's just, well, it's just this really vague term. I, the, um, uh, you can certainly still have markets. You can even have a lot of private ownership, but the private owners need to pay their taxes and follow their regulations and accept the fact that we're going to have enormously large nature reserves and large common spaces that aren't privately owned. And that we're going to have, um, we're going to have some public things such as, we're going to have some public things um, such as a national health service and we're going to have, um, and if something, if um, Amazon, if we can't create a situation where Amazon has real competitors, then we have to give the owner, the, sorry, the users of Amazon some control over that corporation and give it some elements of a user's cooperative. Uh, which I think is far more important than a workers' cooperative, especially if you have a basic income in place. Now, but those reforms, those reforms, I don't specialize in. Uh, a few maybe, but not not in a big way. Um, a big, broad, uh, say this is exactly how we should do it. That I don't know, but a framework for looking at the resources of the earth as the people's endowment, and we only privatize them if that is initially profitable to the people, taking into account the environmental loss of privatizing them and the other losses that it can't be used as a commons or something. Take into account those and how much the pr prospective rentier is willing to pay that that sort of trade is how we need to do it. Uh, that sort of thing. That sort of thing is what I envision. But I'm I'm more specializing in this uh, this idea that we need to create a situation where everyone is free to have a power to say no to uh, a work or a marriage or some other situation uh, uh, that they might do just because they financially need to. And as as Bertrand Russell said, and when he outlined basic income under without naming it in 1960, he said, on this basis, we can build further. It's not the end of social justice. And what we're gonna need to do next, I don't always know, but the transformative effect of just doing this is very big. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And Russell is honestly, like, I, I maintain one of the biggest geniuses of our times, but, but yeah, I think that's an issue too. I think, I mean, spending time among socialists. I don't think socialists have come to a consensus about what socialism is either. And there's kind of also a disconnect between the way we theorize about it versus how are we going to right now mitigate the damages um, of, say, a what we call a capitalist system. So I think, yeah, like basic income is one of those things. I know in the US right now, there's a fight for uh, universal health care. In Canada, that's something we've just taken for granted, I think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah. I, yeah, I mean, you know, no one said that, for instance, the fight for universal health care is the uh, be all end all of giving people a dignified life, but it's definitely something that, um, you know, you could make the case would make people better off. And I think that's kind of an important element of the basic income debate as well. I I was thinking of certain objections that uh, I've seen from people. And one of the ones that I hear the most just from the average person, not from, say, political theorists or anything like that, is I think they conceive of this 
project, and I've seen this debate as well when it comes to the uh, checks that the government's been giving us during this quarantine time, is they kind of envision someone saying, okay, well, I'm getting a check anyway, so I don't think I'm going to work because I don't want to work. I want to just like sit on the couch and like take my money and do what I want with it. And they're saying, you know, if you don't have that threat, then you're not going to be a productive member of society. And so therefore, you're incentivizing people to not work. And then the people who are working are going to be paying for their lifestyle. I think that's the most common objection I've heard from just the average person around here. So how would you respond to that? Well, they're thinking that, well, there's, there's, there's a lot of things that go into a response to that is that, first of all, um, they're thinking work is a duty rather than as an opportunity. Um, you, um, nobody, the, the, the people who own the stuff do not, are not entitled to people's labor. Um, now, and they're also thinking of basic income and because it's a universal payment, they're thinking of it as something created by other people and then given to you for nothing. But despite the fact that basic income is a universal payment where you don't have to do anything to get it, it is the furthest thing from something, nothing. It's the furthest thing from undeserved. Because it is, we're not paying people for what they're doing. We're not paying them for a job. We're paying them for what we're doing to them. Is that we're making all kinds of rules that are favorable to advantaged people and imposing these rules on them. The ownership of all the resources has already been given to something else. Thousands of years, people have been privatizing the earth and paid nothing for it. Property owners say, I bought my property. They paid the other property owners. But what is property? Property is a duty on the part of the rest of the world. Is that if I say this land is my land and it is not your land, I am putting you under a duty to not use this piece of land or anything that I make out of it. I am imposing a duty on you. If you impose a duty on someone, impose an obligation on someone, you need to pay for that. So all the resources that have been privatized are, are, should be rented. And that rent should go back to other people. You deserve that for what we've imposed on you. But we haven't just imposed, we haven't just imposed the fact that other people own stuff and you don't, but all of the government's rules. Every law is imposed on you without necessarily consent. We have these sort of democratic-like systems where people have some input into making the laws, but it, we, universality is impossible. We'll never get universal agreement to anything. And although some of our laws, clearly good laws like don't murder, not all of our laws are like that. And even our enforcement of laws like don't murder is really unfair. It favors advantaged people. If you're, uh, if you're an advantaged person, you're much less likely to be killed than a disadvantaged person. The person who kills you is more likely to spend greater time in jail. You're much less likely to be falsely accused. You're, and, and, uh, and much less likely to be killed by, by someone who suspects you. Of murder. There's a lot of things connected to our murder laws that give us reason why we ought to be giving things back to people. So if people don't want to work, if people want to just take that compensation, 
and sit out and not do a job, that's their problem. Uh, I'm sorry, that's their problem. That's their prerogative. They can do that if they want to. If they don't want to work, the, if, if, if the jobs don't pay them enough, that is the problem for employers. We have an, an incentive problem in this country that we're not dealing with. And that incentive problem is that employers don't have enough incentive to pay good wages. Because when you have this mentality that we're gonna threaten everyone with deep poverty unless they work, then we give employers a great incentive to pay really low wages. Once you get all these people um, on the couch and not working and say, well, you make it worth my while and then I'll go work. I've already got this basic income. You give me something on top of that to make it worthwhile, then you give employers an incentive to give good wages. And if I'm a worker, I should be happy. The more people who do that, the better I can command higher wages. I'm the guy who wants to work. All right, how much are you going to pay me? There's a lot of us sitting on the couch. How much are you going to pay me? The worst thing you can do for a worker is to put them in a position where they have no other choice than, than, but then to take jobs. The best thing that you can do for them is to, is to make sure they have the power to say no to wages and working conditions that don't work for them. So this is a really fascinating twist on a very common trope because usually this burden is placed on the worker to work and you're kind of uh, reversing that and putting that on the employer. You're saying the onus is on you to uh, offer me a livable wage. Am I characterizing that? Yeah, that's right. I mean, a person who has no other choice but to work is a slave. And when you have a system where all of the resources are owned by a small number of people, and then everybody else has to work, and by work we mean take paid employment, for these people who own all the resources, what you have is slavery with a choice of masters. Now, slavery with a choice of masters is a hell of a lot better than, than shadow slavery where your master can buy and sell you. But it's not full freedom either. And slaves knew that. When the Civil War ended, Sherman talked to some former slaves and said, what do you need to maintain your freedom? And they said, uh, uh, a, a, a spokesman, uh, Garrison Frazier, answer that question, we need land so we can till it and turn it by, by our own, by our, with our own efforts. And he said that because he knew that if the freed slaves had nothing else, they, and they would have to work for their former masters, they would have those crap jobs. And that's what they got. And that's the position that former slaves have been in, uh, in our country, largely ever since. A few have made it out and most haven't. Yeah. So, so that, makes me, I know that the movement for Black Lives has endorsed uh, universal basic income um, as a means of reparations for descendants of slaves, descendants of slaves, uh, and that the reparations are to be paid by, uh, well, typically the notion is that the reparations would be paid by people who are descendants of slave owners or by the state. Um, so with a universal basic income, what would, what would be your take on, on that, on reparations in that respect? Yeah, um, I, yes, I support reparations for slavery. And uh, there is one politician, uh, James Felton Keith uh, II, who, who is running for Congress uh, to represent a district in Harlem who is running on basic income and with a connection to 
reparations for slavery. In what I've said so far, I actually connect it with reparations for loss of access to commons for the colonial movement and the enclosure movement, which established a property rights system that was an elite system where the rich people own everything and everybody else works for them. And we tell ourselves that it's all great and free because a tiny sliver of the people from the bottom uh, make it up into the ownership group. Now, I'm portraying it mostly as, as, as reparations for those things which affected everyone on earth. Now, people are also owed reparations for things that affect just particular people. Um, and that ends in the United States, that is going to be, that is, that is going to be um, not just African-Americans, but least the reparations movement cannot forget Native Americans. I mean, Native Americans have had things just, you know, just as bad as like, there's different ways, you know, uh, it's different kinds of oppression, different, different things, but, but uh, it's not about who had it worse. It's not a competition. It's about, you know, redress. And um, it's also, it's not really, none of these reparations are really about things that happened hundreds of years ago. Um, we closed the commons hundreds of years ago, but every day ongoing, we maintain this elite ownership system where we don't all share in the property system that we make out of it. That's really what the basic income is for, not something that happened hundreds of years ago, what is happening today. Now, if in 1865, when the slavery finally ended, if we'd have been a, a, a truly great uh, racially repairing society since then, and every and all everything was fair, there would be no talk of reparations. In the same way that um, that British people are not constantly going to Rome. To, to ask for compensation for the Roman Empire's 400-year occupation of Britain. Okay, that's a long time ago. There's no ongoing exploitation of, a, of Britons by Italians. That's all long gone forgotten. What really reparations for slavery is reparations for a racist society. And white people are not ready to admit that we have a racist society, that that it, we don't, uh, a lot of white people are still in this mentality that we have two races that don't get along, and that's the problem. No, we do not have two races that don't get along. We have a system of racial oppression that advantages one group at the expense of several other groups, and this needs to be redressed. And redress means changing the institutions to change those things, and it, but it also means to say, look, you have inherited a series of disadvantages that affect that that affect your welfare and your financial well-being and that benefit the financial well-being of others and we need to say i'm sorry and the way we say i'm sorry in our culture is to it is with money in part uh, one of the reasons you don't get apologies more often is people are going to think they'll be liable if they act, if they actually admit to wrongdoing and say i'm sorry um, so Money has to be a part of saying, I'm sorry, but also sitting down, listening, saying, we are sorry, and listening, what do we need to do 
to change the system. All of those things have to be part of reparations. Now, how to work this in with a basic income, I don't know. I haven't researched that, but I, I know that we have to listen to the groups and what they're asking for. We need to listen to, to uh, Native American groups, to, to, uh, to uh, the reparations movement, and to other people who are pressing for redress of their grievances. Listen to what they say, negotiate them, and come down with a real settlement. Yeah, I think I see that a lot in, in Canada. Uh, as well, we have, you know, a terrible history with Indigenous Canadians. And right now, you know, we have a liberal government, but uh, the sort of it's a lot of it's very sort of performative without that sort of material uh, effort that's being put in. So it's kind of like you have a ton of performative land acknowledgments and like the prime minister crying and saying sorry, but we don't really have uh, financial redress yet to sort yeah. of deal with that issue. And I think that's kind of the state that a lot of, uh, unfortunately, that a lot of liberal politics is in right now is like, there's the performance of the apology without the material redress. Yeah. So I, I want to get back to objections of uh, to UBI. I, I, so I, I brought up the disincentivizing work thing. I, what you're talking about when you were talking about property, it's kind of like an anti-Lockean perspective almost, um, which is very counterintuitive to say Americans, because I find that like, you know, Lockean philosophy is very underneath a lot of US assumptions about the economy and, and property, especially. So some people might say, um, you know, you take a look at property, you pay for what property you own. Um, maybe, you know, someone might contend you don't have the right to hold resources or block them without paying them back. But let's say you're debating with a Lockean proprietarian. Um, but which by, I, I went on a, a website and during my research, it was like proprietarians.com. It was a little <laughs> bit outrageous, but um, there are people that you have to win over, right? And so, um they might view this issue as unjustly coercive so they're saying like look it's my property you cannot infringe on my possessions you know you call me how dare you kind of thing so how how do you how would you if you don't or how would you engage them i do as a matter of fact okay. um i've written several books on this issue um so uh as a matter of fact i would say most of my most of my arguments are addressed not at not at Rawlsians, not a conventional uh conventional uh liberal egalitarians um and uh uh and not at socialists but at this lockean proprietarian idea mm -hmm. um and um so so my you know where to begin um <laughs> so um my my 2013 book freedom is the power to say no talks about the property rights system how it is it is structured in a way that makes it impossible for some people really to be truly 
free people, to have the physical basis necessary to enter in, in, econ, economic interactions with other people as a free person. Um, and uh, so I argue on that basis. And that is where I'm building up my own theory of freedom. And it is as much a negative theory of freedom as anything else, because people who have the right access to resources and people who have the right skills don't need anybody's help to have the kind of freedom I'm talking about. All they need is other people to step back and let them do it. And we do not. We interfere with them and coerce them. Now, then I have um, two books and several articles attacking this Lockean perspective that, uh, that are called uh, Prehistoric Myths in Modern Political Philosophy. That's the full title of the first book. The second book is The Prehistory of Private Property, uh, which, um, uh, colon, the, the, the uh, um, Prehistoric Myths, book two. Um, now, in the first book, we address this idea um, that we call the Hobbesian hypothesis. And there's a principle in most Lockean theories, but also in most social contract theories as well, is that the property rights system has to be everyone's advantage. So the, this proviso must be fulfilled that I can appropriate property. If I appropriate property, it's mine, but I, the system that comes out of it has to be the one that's good for, for everybody. And social contract theorists say, well, you can impose a government on people as long as it's good for them relative to what comes before. And what they do to tell ourselves, what they do is they both then say, well, what came before was terrible. Look at those naked savages. Look at how horrible it is. And both, and Hobbes, the originator of social contract theory, and Locke, the originator of natural property rights theory, at least the modern originator of it, um, both read colonial accounts of native peoples and who talked about these warlike native savages and how horrible they had and said, look, you don't want to be like them. The civilized, the, 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 the lowest civilized man is way better off than an, and uh, Locke has an argument about how uh, a day labor in Britain in the late 1600s was better than uh, a Native American, the absolute master of thousands of naked savages, completely false. It's based on nothing but the prejudices of colonialists who were going and stealing and land from people. And sure, they wanted to tell themselves that these were warlike savages, that they weren't really great people that they were attacking. It is simply not true. And it's a self-serving assumption again. It's that part of that self-serving bias that all families have. It's reasonable, really, so social contracts fulfilled. Our government, it's not completely fair, but everybody gets this baseline thing where it's generally in your interest. Our property rights system, maybe it's not completely fair, but even those without, they get these great job opportunities. They're going to make them way better off than those naked savages. It is false. If you are at the bottom of our economic system, if you are a homeless person, you are better off being one of those surviving Andaman Islanders than you are being a homeless person in the United States today. We have not lived up to these promises. That promise of our system is not fulfilled. Neither for, And so that sinks social contract theory and any private property system that contains this Lockean proviso. Now that's the first book. That's that's prehistoric myths in modern political philosophy. And it's that's not just, and we do this with real evidence. Uh, these 
people who write this stuff, oh, the, the provisos are fulfilled. They make that stuff up. They have no research. And they portray it like it's obvious. Like, oh, it's obvious day laborers in 16, in Britons in 1600s were way better off than those uncivilized naked savages. And they had no research. And people have been repeating that for hundreds of years with no research. So I teamed up with an anthropologist, Grant McCall at Tulane University. We did the research. And we have references to hundreds of anthropological accounts and actually look at just how poor are the poorest people in society and just how bad off are people in, in native societies. And native, people in native societies don't live well. People indigenous indigenous societies that are really outside of the property rights system do not live well. They have a low life, ex, uh, uh, life expectancy um, and difficult lives to lead. And, and, but the thing is, that is, that's a really low bar for our society. The real injustice in our society is we set this extremely low bar, then we don't even look to find out that we're failing to go up. We just congratulate ourselves for, for jumping over this low bar that we haven't even bothered to check that we utterly failed to jump over. So we set our own low standards and we fail on them. That's, that's a great tragedy of our society. Now the second book looks at three other prehistoric myths. Those are the myth that equality is impossible and the myth that um, capitalism is the best system at promoting negative liberty and the myth that there's something natural about the property rights system, that if you have uh, a principle of appropriation, then people are going to create a private property rights system. And none of these things, if you look at the anthropology of them, are they true? Um, there are societies that maintain very high levels of both negative liberty and freedom, and that are and the people in those societies are freer than the least advantaged people in the United States today. Um, and they're more equal in their societies. They're not necessarily living well, but they are, they are freer. And, and equality is possible, greater democracy is possible if you look at what's going on in anthropology. Now, if this, now this idea that property is somehow natural to do with, well, if it is natural, if it is really true that principles of appropriation and voluntary transfer that propertarians have been talking about for centuries are really make property natural and, and that these taxations and regulations that we have and redistribution that we impose on property is unnatural. And then you should see that in the history of property, you should see continuously thwarted attempts to create an individualist private property system. And when you look as we have, and as the people who make these arguments have not, because we've looked at their argument, the history of the origin and development of the private property rights system, what you see is a lot of communal-based property where people create a commons. They recognize that whatever system we have, people are gonna have to have access to the commons. If it's a hunting and gathering community, you have the entire land is open, people go out and hunt and gather and very often share what they find, at least with their whoever's camping together. If you have an agrarian community, then usually people are, you're, people are entitled to a certain no, amount of access to farmland and, uh, and access to hunting and, and gathering land on top of that. 
um, but not to any specific plot. And that they also regulate what other people can do. They look at, well, if you do too much of this, that's going to deplete the soil. Fertility be bad for all of us. You can't do that. People, the people who are closest to original appropriation do not establish these really individualistic institutions that property rights advocates say are natural. And these sorts of communal types of institutions developed all over the world. And they were destroyed by the twin movements of the enclosure movement in Europe and the colonial movement around Europe. And these are going on at the same time that Locke and Hobbes and Thomas More and William Blackstone and Adam Smith and a lot of other people were writing, talking about how natural these institutions are. And what they were doing was they weren't writing about the system. We have Locke knew that the enclosure movement was destroying communal property at the time that he was writing about how natural uh, private ownership was. Private mm -hmm. ownership was being created arbitrarily by acts of parliament at the time. So what they were doing was very much a propagandistic role, and it's simply false. There is no natural right to private property. Private property are things that governments create, is a thing that government creates arbitrarily. It can do so for good reasons and for bad. So if we're gonna create a property rights system, it has to be one that's fair to everybody. That, that if we're gonna proper, private, privatize property and give some to you, you've gotta be giving something back that's going to profit not just someday maybe get a job for some poor person that is going to profit all the people that you're imposing the duty to respect your ownership of that profit. You're imposing this duty on them. You got to pay for that duty. That is, and you're going to pay the regulations because we live in an environment and the days when you could think of unused land as wasteland, as Locke did, um, we're never here. And the problem of that is becoming really apparent. We have to have environmental regulations to protect us all from the destruction of the environment that the ownership system is doing is is doing right now. And you can't blame it just on the ownership system because uh, be, because North Korea with a very with a royal ownership system that calls itself communist, but it's really just a royal system. Uh, they're destroying their environment as fast as we are. Uh, so it's it's. It's elitist systems, whether they're private elitist or whether they're centralized elitist, um, like you had in the Soviet Union. It's these elite systems that are the problem. We have to have a non-elite system and then and environmental and other kinds of regulations that are really going to make sure that the system works for everybody. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. And I think, you know, especially I'm always averse to arguments that sort of appeal to nature to make a point because there's always these really yeah. wild logical leaps that yeah, yeah. Uh, seem to exist. Like you're kind of insinuating a system is, is natural without really, like there's always a jump between saying, you know, this is how nature is. And then this is how we have to, to live. It always seems logically faulty to me. So I definitely, and I think colonialism is one of the best examples of that. Um, and, Honestly, I think, and I've written articles about this as well, and that uh, there's these sorts of justifications used for colonialism that are now being used for imperialism abroad, which is also environmentally destructive as well. Um, and they kind of rely on this, these notions that these societies would be better off if 
we were to go and impose our democracies on them, whatever that means. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, um, so yeah, I totally, totally get that. Um, I no, that was, that was really coherent. Uh, and you've strengthened my, my support of UBI. Um, <laughs> Cool. Yeah, uh, the I I, re I remember I was introduced to the idea of UBI because a coworker mentioned Andrew Yang's campaign, and at first I was oh, like, wow. "That's ridiculous." <laughs> yeah, and I and then I looked into it, and I was like, "Oh, actually, that's I, I guess what was attracted to me. It seemed like the most efficient form of social redress. Like, no wealth wouldn't be destroyed in bureaucracy. Wealth wouldn't be destroyed in discriminatory means testing, stuff like that." Uh, I was wondering if you you had any comments or criticism of Andrew Yang's campaign and um, if you paid attention yeah. to that at all? Um, well, I, I, I met Andrew, Andrew Yang once very early on in his campaign when he was speaking full, uh, you know, a, a, a room with a capacity of, uh, a, a, I don't know, maybe 40 people were there and the place was, you know, uh, capacity for 80 or whether 40 or capacity was 20, there were 40 or 20, you know, it's like half full, yeah. huge thing. Uh, he was new, um, and he was a really nice guy, really level-headed, and he knew my stuff, um, and he knew other people in the movement, and it, of course, and he, he just said, he quoted me. I mean, some guy, quote, you're running for president of the United States, you're going to show a picture of me, you know, with a quote by me, and you think that's going to help. Okay, oh. that's what you want. Now, it's very hard for me not to endorse, if somebody endorses me, you know, yeah. hard for me yeah. not to endorse somebody, especially their smart, level-headed guy, which he turns out to be. Um, and so I followed his campaign, and the there, there, there's a lot of great things about the campaign um, and and his program. I, I read and reviewed his book and gave it a gave it a positive review. However, his basic income was too small, and it made one really enormous mistake, which was leaving out children. If you mm. uh, if you leave out children you are leaving out the poorest demographic in the United States, which is single mothers and their children. So a single mother with three kids gets the same 12,000 years, 12,000 a year minus the value added tax that every other individual gets. And they're supposed to live on that. Now it is true that most single parent families in that situation are worse off than that right now. Not all of them are. If you add up welfare benefits that people are eligible for, sometimes you're considerably better off than that. And Yang wasn't, he was saying, you have the option to keep that. Um, but the basic income itself wasn't good enough for that group. And you got to realize what the basic income is for. I mean, it, it is more for the least advantaged. And the worst thing you can do to human beings is to have them grow up in poverty. That costs them and everyone else for the rest of their lives. There's no amount of money that you can give a person in adulthood that will make up for growing up in poverty. Some lucky people, yeah, they get up and thrive. But if you look at, if you look at how people who grow up in poverty do throughout their lives, no matter what good fortunes come on them, you'll find they do worse in every category. The people who become that that you know, thrilling novelist or something after this horribly deprived childhood, those are very rare. We yeah. know about them because they're rare. Um, so he didn't do enough for the least advantaged. 
in that. And that, that I think was the biggest drawback for his campaign. And, you know, he did that. What he told me is he needed a, he needed a program that was costed out. And this was, mm-hmm. and, uh, and he went with the system and he knows this was like his like starting point. Yeah, and yeah. I, and I think just about everybody in the Yang gang really wants something bigger than that. And the basic income movement is made up almost entirely people um, who want something much larger than that. Um, and that includes children. So, uh, so I, um, and so I think he's coming around to that. And I think, I think he's a, I think he's a really good guy and he's going to do good things in the coming years. And, um, what he did for the movement, raising the profile of basic income, not just in the U S but around the world. Yeah. Um, because people still pay attention to the U.S. I don't know why, but people still do outside the That's U.S. That's us. I mean, we're not American. I. Uh, the reason why I do is is yeah. because a lot of my politics focus on war. And mm-hmm. so if you're focusing on war, especially for me, I do a lot on war yeah. in the Middle, Middle East. Yeah. I find that um, if I'm studying on war in the Middle East, mm-hmm. America is like the center of of every every analysis when it comes to that so when i was looking at this campaign season i leaned bernie just because i thought he had the best foreign policy um but i was very interested in in yang's campaign as well one issue i had that um with his framework is, is something you kind of mentioned where you have the option to keep your sort of welfare uh, payments and stuff like that, or disability checks or something in that regard, or you, um, get the basic income check. So you kind of have to do the math and decide. Um, but then like, let's say there's someone like, you know, me, I'm not on any sort of financial assistance except for, you know, the stipend from Mm -hmm. the, from his university. Right. Um, but like from the government. Mm -hmm. So let's say like then the, um, the people who are better off, who don't need to worry about their social services uh, or the, the other checks they would get from these things, they get these payments regardless. Plus, they don't rely on other assistance programs. And then these other people, they would have to choose between these programs and, say, uh, their basic income check. Mm-hmm. So they're the ones that they there's a burden on them to sort of like yeah. do the math and decide. So then I feel like that would still advantage me, for instance, in that respect, unfairly, perhaps. I actually, I don't think it advantages anybody okay. because those things are so cumbersome and complex and they create this poverty trap um, that makes it really, really hard to get it. So you, the people who are most stuck because of the poverty track, you're keeping them stuck with this plan. Um, and then kids growing up in poverty, um, have, they have that great burden to live with their whole life. That burdens the rest of society. There's really no advantage to society of putting people in a poverty trap where, um, where, where, they uh, where where they actually it costs them money to get a job and it costs them money to move up. That's just that's not good for anybody. Um, we do it because we think punish, punish, punish. You're poor. You need to be punished. That's the way we look at it. We do it because because we 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 think it's good for us. But a lot of the things that we we a lot of our self-serving ideas are really ultimately self-defeating. 
is a lot of this punish, punish the poor actually harms the middle class because it keeps us, that's, that puts a whip to us. Every time we punish those worse off than us, we're putting a whip to ourselves. Yeah. So then I guess like what I'd be wondering is would, would it be, would you support say replacing social welfare programming with a UBI or would you say that they should be supplemented with a UBI? If the UBI is, the, the higher UBI gets, the more things you can replace with it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've got a really low UBI, it's better off not to replace anything. Even if you got one that's just, it's like higher than food stamps. Well, if it's not enough to live on, you're better off you get that and food stamps. Um, right. But, you know, it's, but at some point, um, you know, in, in the, I don't know what the maximum social security benefit is. Um, it, uh, let's say it's twenty thousand um, dollars, and uh, say it's twenty thousand dollars. I don't know what it is. Say it's twenty thousand dollars. That's forty thousand for a couple, um, and let's say the basic income is also twenty thousand dollars. Well, it's not necessarily think that the idea is to get that couple a raise from forty to eighty thousand dollars a year, plus whatever else, whatever asset income they might have. That's not necessarily what we need to do and not necessarily where the money is best spent. Um, so it can, so you can, you, you, what you can do is to, is if, if it's high enough, you can start to really cancel some things. If you've got a 20,000 a year basic income for adults and 10,000 for children, you can certainly cancel food stamps and you can cancel a lot of other things. And if you combine that with a system that addresses how, unfair our housing situation is and how that drives up rents, which has to do with a lot of complex things, including zoning laws, but also including the way we let concentration of ownership happen and we don't tax land value and a lot of other things. You address those things, get the price of housing down and give people incentive to rent to this market and to rent quality stuff to this market, um, get those things, and then you can end a lot of things, maybe like uh, like housing benefits or improve them now, but until then, until you get a really high, so, um, but there's, it's always, there's going to have to be some things that are add-ons. There's some things you cannot replace and can never replace. Okay. It shouldn't be that if I become a, I'm saying I'm living on the basic income. I got, you know, 20,000 a year. It's very good basic income, 20,000 years. And I become a paraplegic. Okay. I shouldn't have to buy my own wheelchair out of my basic income. Oh, go buy yourself a $2,000 basic income. You got your $20,000 uh, basic income. Go spend that on a wheelchair, on a really nice wheelchair, you know. Uh, suck it up. No, that's it shouldn't work that way. Um, I, you know, I have a special need. We got to be taking care of that. You know, we're not taking out of the basic. So some things you'll never replace. But, and so, and so, I, uh, I haven't looked about what is a line by line checklist of what we can and cannot replace. And I haven't looked at that, but the general idea is the higher it is, the more you can replace with some things you can never. Replace. Yeah, no, that's definitely, that definitely answers. Cause I, I think that's what a lot of people are worried about. They're sort of worried about um, replacing these sort of essential programs um, with, uh, with this sort of, this check and I think that appeals to a lot of libertarians for instance because like the libertarians I know that do support UBI they do so because it would eliminate a lot of these social welfare programs and 
And it's what people always want to try to characterize it as poor people versus poor people. They want to say, oh, they want to take away your housing benefit. Say you're in San Francisco or New York and you've got a big housing benefit that might have a cash value of over $30,000 a year. They want to take that away and give you a $12,000 a year basic income. No, it's not what anybody in the basic income movement wants to do. Uh, if we get it high enough or combine it with housing policy so you don't need that, then we would get rid of that if uh, but only if something better is in place and otherwise otherwise the uh, basic income is going to be uh, uh, is going to be maybe a partial add-on to that maybe if you've got a thirty thousand dollar benefit and you say okay well um, uh, five thousand out of this twenty thousand basic income was supposed to go for rent so you'll only get fifteen since you get this housing benefit you only get fifteen instead of the twenty something like that you might get um, those kind of things to, for working it in with the existing system we would do, but it's not about making some poor get less so that other poor people can have more. It is about a much more generous system where we tax the rentier class, the people who are living off their assets and other really big high income and high wealth holders, tax this group because they have benefited enormously from economic growth in the last 50 years that the rest of us have in sharing. It's about taking the benefits of all that economic growth that uh, that tiny sliver of people have, have benefited from and sharing that out with everybody. So it's about um, taxing the most able to share with all the poor. So there's going to be add-ons for the existing system. It's not about robbing these other policies to pay for basic income. Yeah, I think that addresses um, especially a lot of the left's concerns with basic income. I know um, a lot of people are hesitant to go on board because of that, Um, especially, I mean, um, we kind of talked about, Ken and I kind of talked about this last week, like I think certain things, um, and again, this would apply more to Canada than the US, but certain things like say our healthcare system, I think should not just be thrown out the window for like, a basic income, for instance, um, which I think would some people argue for. Mm-hmm. So I can think... I, uh, can I go back to the single mother example that you were talking yeah. about, about a, a UBI for the children? Yeah. Uh, that's, a really, that's a really good point that I actually hadn't considered. Just what about the crazy idea of, of, of giving minors a universal basic income? Is that ever discussed? Oh, yeah. Uh, most basic income plans... Uh, in, include a basic income, uh, the, the, the children get the basic income. In some, the children get the same as everybody else. In others, the children get less, usually half. Mm-hmm. Um, but the children personally get it, not their, their guardian, oh, is what okay. I was now, saying. It's, it's always a question of, it is okay to be paternalistic with children. The problem with paternalism is one adult being paternalistic with another adult is usually not a good idea. But being children need somebody to be paternalistic with them. However, exactly when they can control most of their own stuff and gradually get the the ability to do that is tough. And you can give it to the wrong person. You know, there are times where, there are times where parents neglect their children, whether they have a job or they're, or they're living off of benefits, they can neglect their children. Um, And, and a lot of very wealthy families have a parent who hoards all the money and the, the children and the other parent don't get stuff. So, Um, you need to, for the most part, you're going to need to make sure that the custodial parent has it and you need some sort of social, social, um, social service, social, um, 
so some sort of social system set up that if you do have a neglectful parent, that you have a system in place to make sure that that parent stops neglecting those kids or those kids get some kind of aid. But you can't, you know, give a three-year-old, you can't give three, <laughs> a three-year-old $1,000 a month. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I, I find that very, maybe humorously, but very attractive. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. 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 No. There are a lot of 16-year-olds who would be better off than that. Right. Yeah. I think uh, so. If, but, but one of the things is that it's better off to be the child of a wealthy, neglectful parent than it is to be the child of a poor, neglectful parent. Right. And, and that's just a simple fact of life. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, the best thing you can do for a child is to make sure their parents are, not, are, are non-poor. Mm-hmm. And that's only get, you only really get exceptions to that when a kid is really just about old enough to leave home. Yeah, right. I, I I work for a nonprofit that deals with at-risk youth, and I've really thought about that because there are some people who are like 15, 16, and their parents are say like for instance, there's transgender kids whose parents don't accept them and kick them out of the house, for instance. And I think you know economic empowerment is uh, like in the case where you can't make the parents accept it, you know, then in that scenario, having a, like a basic income would make a world of difference, not only for their economic subsistence but also for their mental health if you know that you have the option to leave mm-hmm. a, a bad situation then that's that's kind of where that's where i see the appeal in a lot yeah. of in a lot of yeah. scenarios in that respect Which okay. was, you know, on this issue of you know we need a basic income for children going to consortial parent to make children make sure children don't grow up poor uh but all but and i also said you also have to do something to make sure that that people aren't um that you do something about neglectful parent but that can be abused too we very often abuse our oversight of looking whether parents are, are neglectful or abusive what we do is if if you have a mostly we use we, we really end up just punishing people for being poor we want to think that all these poor people on benefits are probably, they're all really abusive and neglectful, and we want to have super strong punitive oversight of all these people, then if you're wealthy and male, they're going to assume you're a good parent to prove an otherwise, and they're not going to bother investigating you to find out if otherwise. And there's really no more incidence of neglectful or abusive parents at the low end of the income scale is at the high end of the income scale. Whatever you have to do, it's got to be non-punitive. It's got to be oriented for the benefit of the children. And not, and you got to make sure that nothing you're doing is simply a proxy for punishing people for being poor. A lot of the most abusive households are some people who have a decent amount of means and have some religious excuse for why they're keeping the kids out of society. And uh, says, oh, these are just, you know, good Christian people. Well, it's actually some weird cult um, that has very little to do with mainstream Christianity or something like that. And, uh, and you can get, you, uh, you know, I've read things about kids that grew up in really horrible environments. And not just Christians, uh, Jews, some, uh, Muslims, any uh, non-religious people, mm-hmm. um, and, and all kinds of any any walk of life, you can have somebody that's a bad parent. And what we do is, the more you're from an in group, the less we'll supervise you, 
And the poorer you are and the more from an out group, the more we want to supervise you. And that's, and we apply that to panting. So we, we got to do something to protect children, but we also got to not use that as an excuse to abuse out group parents. That's, yeah, that's a that's a really interesting point. I I hadn't thought of that at all. So I have like uh, kind of two related questions, and then we'll move on to stuff that's a little more fun, and then we'll okay. close up. <laughs> so um, so basically, there's there's two another like sort of objections from the left. I hear a lot. One of it has to do with perhaps the most controversial property owners, which is landlords. So let's say that we put um, uh, like a, inco- a basic income of at $2,000 a month. What's to stop landlords from simply uh, increasing the rent by $2,000? And similarly, uh, what's to stop an employer from pushing uh, wages down? Because they say, well, you have a basic income, so why should I, why should I pay okay. you more? Okay, well, those are two very different questions. Okay. Um, if the basic income is large enough for you to live on, then, then, and employers decide that they're going to lower your wages in response to that, then you're just going to live off the basic income. Then they're they're reducing the but you know so you get this amount of money for not you get this amount of money for uh, whether you work or not. And then you get this much more if you work. And they're going to squeeze that. They're going to lower the differential. They're going to lower the differential uh, between what you get when you work and what you, what you don't. Um, that is going to give people more incentive to quit their jobs. Um, so if, so, if, you're, if your employer lowers your income in response to basic income, quit your job. Do the right thing. Quit your job. Put pressure on that. Give give that employer an incentive to pay higher wages. And it's also funny that people will make the one argument, well, no one will work. And then and the opposite argument, well, they're just lower wages. Um, those can't both be true. Uh, if people are going to work less, wages are going to go up. And that's ex- and, and we got to make sure it's high enough so people can work less. If wages are really, if, if the basic income is really low, we could get the effect you're talking about. If you need it, if you still need the job, and you get this basic income, it is conceivable that they would lower wages in response to it. So it's got to be a high enough basic income. Okay, so that's for, that's, that's for jobs. That's an easy one. Now, and the red one is actually pretty easy. It's actually fairly easy, too, is that if you could create a basic income that you gave to everybody, and then you didn't increase taxes on anybody, anyone, anywhere, you just injected money in the economy, you injected $2 trillion a year, or six, you just several trillion dollars a year um, into the economy every year without taxing any of that back. Well, then landlords would just raise their wages, but also you'd just get inflation. You cannot have an enormous program like basic income without having more taxes, or you're going to have inflation. Okay, so you're going to have to have some more taxes. You're going to, and when you have more taxes, you're taking that money back out. You're counteracting the inflationary pressure you create by spending the basic income by the deflationary pressure you have with taxes. You have this, okay? Now you have that, and those people who pay those taxes live somewhere. They all live somewhere. The people who, and they pay the biggest rents. They have the biggest land. So the land value where the, where the 
where the people in the upper end of the income distribution, their land values are going to go down. Now, the places where the places where poor people live, who are going to be net recipients of the basic income, their land value land values in those areas are going to go up. So, land values where net net payers live go down. Land values in places where net recipients live go up. They get closer. Now, that one thing there is a bad thing that that will partially counteract. The advantage of the, the the amount that you get from basic income. One thing you do about that is you can, can tax land values and cycle that back in basic income to cushion people from that. That's one thing you can do about it. But another thing you do is is about is realize this is not good for landlords across the board. If you're if you're uh, if you're renting to people at the upper end of the income, then it's going the other way. So what you're also doing when you do this is you're reducing housing segregation. And housing segregation is a horrible thing. What you're now doing is making it possible for people to move to wealthier neighborhoods, for, for people at the upper and the lower income, uh, upper end of the income spectrum, to live closer together, redressing an enormous problem in our society. Part of the re reason that we need reparations, because we're constantly channeling out groups into these into neighborhoods that become that become dangerous and become food edges and all these things. So this the effect that it has on land value is actually a very good one for society. As long as you make sure that we're looking at well how much is it affecting the rents in low income areas and can people still afford those rents on uh, on their basic income and what other things we can do from our housing policy to uh, to make sure that housing is affordable for everybody. I, that's definitely one I've thought about. I lived in Montreal for five years when I was doing my undergrad and master's, and I, the landlord situation there is just outrageous. And yeah. so it's something people think about a lot. They there's they there they have rent control, so they like try to make it so they can't increase the rent, uh, but they find ways, and it's it's very chaotic for. For, for Montrealers, so <laughs> it's just a question I had to had to think about. So I think now Ken has some. some uh, how do you like your Wikipedia page? I thought it was pretty good. Oh, it's <laughs> it's basically lifted from my my BN profile. Okay. Uh, so of course I'm gonna like it. I mean, I wrote my BN profile, and then somebody took that. Somebody like that's uh, funny. Made, I was gonna ask you if you like, wrote uh, it. that and put it on Wikipedia. Well, yeah. that, that was nice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I have a pretty good suspicion it was a, that it was a friend of mine. <laughs> a well, that's good. Good friend. But I'm not going to ask. <laughs> um, yeah, that's pretty funny. Yeah. That's funny. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we were wondering about yeah. like academics and their Wikipedia. They never page. admit to writing their own Wikipedia page. Yeah. That would be. But <laughs> if you uh, if if you want to if you want to go and make changes to it, please please do. <laughs> Basically, just lifted from. Oh man. And so so another thing is is you kind of mentioned this before, but you're you're bassist, uh, just like Ken. And your birthday is the day before Ken's as well. Hmm. Which is <laughs> right. oh, wow. oh. Yeah. Um so do you still play bass? I um I pl I play guitar more than I play bass now. I haven't actually played bass in quite some time. Uh what I found was when 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 I wasn't doing music full-time well you know i wasn't like in a band anymore when i was when i when, when i was doing music i'd be doing it by myself it was much better to do it uh as an acoustic guitar player because um a play somebody playing bass and singing uh, it's not it, it's uh without a drummer 
um, unless you got a really good drum machine and you're an amazing bass player. It's like, you're, you, you know, it's not much of a show there. But, um, and also, uh, I don't like electric guitar without, uh, without drums. Um, and uh, there are some really talented people who insist on doing it. Eh, I don't like their stuff. Um, so I, I've been playing mostly acoustic guitar and singing also, not actually singing. Well, I do vocals, but I wouldn't really call, call it singing what I do. So, uh, so that's what I still do music now. And I don't even do much of that, which is kind of disappointing because I've written or co-written like over a hundred songs in my life. And I finally got good at it. And I could also some good creative covers and stuff like that. And I miss doing it, but also I really want to write these books. That's yeah. really the priority in my life. And I've got other comp competing things on my time. I've got to hold down my university professor job, which means teaching student classes and doing the service. And I'm married. Yeah, that's, that's, you know, that's time. You got to do a lot of stuff. Um, yeah. So, um, so uh, and that, that has largely pushed music out of my life. I actually did somebody's uh, birthday the other day. They, they had a Zoom party. And they really wanted to hear one of my songs, so I did. But I haven't done, uh, I haven't done a lot of music lately. I, I, I miss it, but hopefully, uh, hopefully there'll be more of that out somewhere. But as I told you, you know, somebody wrote a song about my theory. That's all yeah, I love that. Now, so, so what's that song called? Okay, it has, it has a Danish, it has a Danish name, which I can't remember. Uh, but it keeps saying the power to say no, power to say no, over and over again, which is really that's cool. that's really punk rock. Yeah, I I definitely find similar. Like I'm not married or anything, but even being in grad school, I found it really hard to like stay focused on music. I think like quarantine's been yeah. the best opportunity to sort of do it again. I've always been hesitant about writing about anything political. We yeah. kind of talked about this on the podcast a, a few episodes ago. We had a musician on and we were talking about how there's not a lot of, it's hard to write a good political song without it being corny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, sorry. Go on. Oh, do you have any favorite uh, political musicians besides their, this band that wrote about yeah. you? Um, well, um, yeah, I've seen the English translation of, of, of the lyrics. I, I, I like it. It's not my kind of punk. I go for the more melodic punk, and they go for the, they go for the more like uh, like chanting punk, you know. <laughs> um, uh, I like I like the I like the translation of the lyrics. Uh, I haven't the stuff I've written. I've also not been able to write stuff. People are like, "Why don't you write a song about base skin color?" I, I don't know. I have <laughs> the idea. The most political thing, I did write a very political song called The Home of the Fat Homeless. Uh, home, of the, home of the Fat Homeless, Home of the Free, where if we only eat garbage, this is the land of plenty. Uh, that's inflammatory. That's the, cor that's the chorus. Um, and um, I haven't written a lot of stuff. So a favorite um, political, um, uh, Rancid is, is, is a is a big favorite band they 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 really come to mind um uh the, the song stand your ground very political the song salvation uh, about uh living in a homeless shelter working for the salvation army and then going into a wealthy neighborhood to pick up microwaves refrigerators for the suffering uh, and being you know I, i'm a rat i'm a man on a mission i'm a rat i'm in your front yard under suspicion 
because uh, he's like this punk guy shows it with a mohawk and stuff shows up to pick up people's refrigerators uh, that's a great political song I like the you know, the clash and Lou Reed uh, at least a lot of Celtic punk and uh, you know, like the the levelers and the pogues uh, we love the pogues uh, on this podcast yeah, I'm a huge fan. <laughs> oh really oh that's yeah. cool and and, uh, and there's lots of good Celtic punk still coming out the Dropkick Murphys uh, yeah. the Worker song is an amazing political song um, like uh, Let's see, there's a band. Do you know the song A Little Revolution by Firewater? No. Uh, that's an amazing song. Um, uh, stuff, stuff in those areas and then like dozens of other bands and songs that I could name. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's some, I've been really enjoying Serge Tankian stuff <laughs> lately. Oh, right. Yeah, he, he's, he's a singer of System of a Down, um, but he has solo oh, stuff okay. and he's... He's Armenian. He grew up in Lebanon, which is oh, wow. where my family's from. Mila, something I can't pronounce. For the last yeah. <laughs> yeah, no one, no one can pronounce it. Um, yeah, that's like the anglicized version. I just say okay. to say Garaya because the GH it doesn't like yeah. exist in the yeah. English language. Is it like, oh. It's yeah. It's like oh, like. I, I never use that pronunciation. Like mm-hmm. I just I just use Garaya because yeah. I don't like to make everyone's life difficult. <laughs> yeah. But but yeah, I know that so my, my name is pronounced Clark. Clark. <laughs> yeah. Clarka. It's a it's a tough one. Um is that Clarka or Clarky? Just Clark-y. just Clark. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> Other countries where they pronounce their, their E's. Yeah. yeah, I saw that you teach in in Qatar. Yeah, are you are you currently there, or you're in the states? Uh, no, I'm I'm in New Orleans. I was on sabbatical when this whole thing hit, but they sent people home in mid semester, so I missed out on that. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, you had the option of staying, but you had to be under mm-hmm. lockdown, or you could go home and teach from home. So I think most people went home. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And it's where I am teaching some of the most privileged people in the world. People with with you know oil money and natural gas right. money and all, all, all this all this stuff but also people who are impressed some who are impressed in some way um uh women in a sexist society or you know uh uh men who are dealing with okay being in, in, uh, a privileged arab in a world that's built for white people you know uh and then we get foreign students none of which are really from a a, a hugely disadvantaged background uh we tend to get very wealthy foreign students as well. Um, and it's a weird place. It's, it's, it's this um, really boring town that's like a, a, an imitation of L.A., but you take all the, the, the counterculture stuff out of L.A. and you're left just with the chain restaurants. Uh, yeah. Traffic, you know, that's what you, that's like Doha. Yeah, I mean, I know a bit of. I have some family in the Gulf, but not not yeah. in Qatar. But I I have some family in Bahrain, and I mean, I've never been to the Gulf. I've only been to Lebanon. But yeah, I, I, I something I really notice is that you know American anti-racism discourse really maps on does not map on very well onto the Middle East, particularly yeah. in, in the yeah. Gulf. Like what you're saying about you know privileged Arabs in a world made for white people. Well, you know if you're a Sunni Muslim that's like wealthy in the Gulf, you're basically the white person of the Middle East. And that Yes, you that. are. Yeah, you yeah. are there. Um, yeah. You are there, but you also have this knowledge that like America like looms over everything you do. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And like there's, you go there 
and the citizens have lost, but yeah, I mean, you don't, but you are a white person, you know, you have this white citizenship, you have this American white citizenship, you know, uh, and there's, you know, there, there's, so this, these, these weird dynamics that we're just, you know, not used to. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, I'm sure we'll reconnect at some point. And, uh, and yeah, I hope that your quarantine is going well and, uh, and all that. And uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it is. It is, by the way. And hope yours is That's too. good. That's good. All right. Well, thanks so much again. And thanks right. to our. Thanks again. Nice to meet you. See you later. Bye. Bye. Oh, hi there. There we go. Um, I hope that you all enjoyed that. Thank you. That was really interesting that I learned a lot. I mean, I love to talk shit about John Locke, so mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I really felt like, you know, uh, there was a really cool appeal to uh, someone like me who's like an agnostic leftist about UBI because some a lot of my concerns I felt like were quite address- well addressed. I can't find propertarians.com. What is it called? It's like propertarians something. I can't remember. I was like going down a rabbit hole. Oh, propertarianism.com. Yeah. And yeah. Like, no, he made a he made a very coherent uh okay, well we need to get him back on tomorrow. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and everyone An episode a day, just like Joe. Well, we're gonna um, have to start doing premium ones for the patrons because we promised them we should thank our patrons right now and then and unwrap yeah. it thanks everyone to list for listening to the unacceptable podcast this was such a cool episode to do um you guys have to give us some thoughts about premium i don't know what the fuck do we have to say for the premiers nothing it's just an extra episode <laughs> uh, okay all right we can just more banter um okay. yeah so so thank you all to uh, we have some new patrons mm. um and we are super super grateful for all of you um i i love love this community so uh thank you to rpgre alexandra so- ivan sasha and camilo uh you guys are rock stars and uh if any of anyone else is interested in supporting the pod you can go to patreon.com slash unacceptable podcast um and we'll have some fun things for you mm-hmm. okay thank you everybody you can thank you mila thank you uh carl and uh, have a uh, have a good week